righteousness of God. Now, over the last probably nine months, one of the things I've been sharing with you and kind of pounding as part of our overarching vision for the church is to understand that the greatest need of every human being is to know God. And we've talked about knowing Him accurately and personally, knowing Him savingly and intimately, and knowing Him eternally. The first word in that list that I've given over and over to you is the word accurately. One of the lacks within the Christian church is the lack of the knowledge of the righteousness of God. You see, the people that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 10 were people who grew up in church. In fact, they went to synagogue every Sabbath. They went to the temple for all of the high and holy days. They went to the temple for worship and reminder and for the Day of Atonement and to visit to celebrate the Passover and all of the different things that Judaism was called to celebrate under the Old Testament and its laws. But even with all of those reminders and all of that attendance and all of that Scripture and the fact that they had a reading that was cyclical so that they would read all the way through the things in the Old Testament every so many years and and they would be exposed to all these things, even with all of that, the fundamental thing that they had missed was the righteousness of God. How holy and pure and unapproachable that God is. And resultantly, they became self-righteous and casual in their approach to Him. They felt like their approach to Him was based on their own goodness, their own deeds, their own righteousness, their own works, their own religion. So they always walked around with a sense of self-qualification, feeling like, I'm good to go. I can sort of barge right into His presence and worship Him because I'm I'm a pretty good guy, I'm a pretty good gal, I pay attention to the rules, I'm moral. And so what happened was is they, through church, didn't get exposed to the righteousness of God and therefore become more humble. Through church, they simply affirmed their own self-righteousness and became more prideful. And so Jesus spoke with them about the way they did church, about the way they approached God, about the way they taught, about the way they interpreted the Scriptures, and about the way they handled themselves. And He said to them, especially the religious leaders of His day, He says, you go on overseas mission trips, To make one proselyte, which was a convert to Judaism. And you make him or her to become twice a son or daughter of hell as you are. That was one of the most shocking things that Jesus ever said. What he was dealing with was that if a church, if a congregation, if a religion is built on the belief that its congregants are good to go because they're moral, religious, prayerful, or any other activity other than Jesus Christ Himself, that the converts we make will not be headed for an eternal bliss 
but an eternal condemnation because we will teach people that the way to heaven is through self-righteousness rather than through Jesus Christ alone. And so when Jesus took up these things, he took up these things with long-standing religious people. Folks who had Bibles or access to them. Folks who had Scripture and understanding of it. In other words, he gave those things as a warning to all people of all generations that it's easy to kind of slip into worship acting like we are really got it together. When the truth is, we don't. We really don't. Any togetherness that anybody in this group has today that is of any value came from Jesus Christ. Everything else is nothing. And this is important for worship. Because worship is an approach to God. It's us coming before our Maker, bowing, kneeling, praising, worshiping, reflecting, enjoying. And if that is done on a false premise, then it never happened at all. And so, one of the great things that Christ did for us is He left us meaningful lessons with symbols in them. Where the lesson and the symbol were merged so that the lesson and the symbol came together to inform us of something. And so that's what the Lord's Supper is. As a high and holy sacrament of the church, as an ordinance, one of the two that Jesus gave us, it is our recognition through the Lord's Supper of some things about God, some things about us, and some things about Jesus. And so in order to come together and to approach Him in a way that is meaningful to us, to God, and to Jesus, we must do so with a great awareness of what we're doing today. So what I want to do today is kind of walk us through the Lord's Supper, scripturally, with some time to reflect on the Scriptures, and some time to consider us being here. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ. The word incarnate means to become flesh, to put on flesh and blood. And these passages of Scripture are going to be helpful to us. We're going to start in the book of John. And I'm just going to read through various Scriptures, give us some time for thought and reflection, and move us towards the Lord's table. So, when we talk about the incarnation We're going to start in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to talk about who it is that is incarnate. Who became flesh? Who put on flesh and blood? So in John chapter 1, we hear about the deity, the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we're talking about the eternal Creator, Jesus Christ. An uncreated, eternal being. Verse 14. And the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. So as Jesus hands the bread to His disciples and says, This is my body. He's making reference to the incarnation. God put on flesh and blood. 
The third person of the eternal trinity, Father, Son, second person, excuse me, and Holy Spirit, put on what you wear every day. Real skin. A heart that beat. A body that needed nourishment. All of the realities of being in flesh and blood, Jesus did. In fact, this is shown to us very vividly in the book of Hebrews. Join me there. In verse 1 through 3 of chapter 1, the writer reminds us of whom we speak when we do the Lord's Supper. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. Listen carefully. The one you will celebrate at the table today in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup is holding the atoms and molecules of your body in their position today. You exist. All nature, all creation, all matter, all energy in the universe is emanating from the Word of His power. Right now, Your existence is utterly dependent upon the word of His power. He is upholding all things. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible talks about the humility of Jesus. In verse 14, since the children, that's the Children of God, folks who inherit eternal life and salvation through Jesus. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise also partook of the same. So herein is the incarnation. The eternal Son of God who upholds all things by the word of His power Put on what you're wearing today in all of its weaknesses, its temptabilities, all of its struggles, all of its limitations. Jesus clothed Himself in that because of you and His love for you. In verses 17 and 18 of the same chapter, it says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like His brethren in all things. Have you thought about that? You see, I don't know if anybody understands me. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One from whom people might turn their faces. Do you feel your limitations, your rejection, your sorrows, your griefs, your anxieties? Jesus knows them all. Not just from afar. He knows them intimately from His own experience. He had to be made like His brethren in all things, that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus is the original first responder when you fall into temptation because he knows what you're going through. He is willing to rush to your aid. 
These are all the glorious truths of His incarnation. We get one more truth in chapter 4 that is worth our considering today as we come to the table. In verse 14 of Hebrews 4, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He understands you. Right now, He understands you. Everything that you feel, you know, you experience, Jesus truly understands. And so all of a sudden, because of this understanding, and because He is our high priest, He puts up a welcome sign that is premised on what we're about to celebrate. Listen to the welcome sign. Verse 18, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to what kind of throne? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus wants you to approach God and His eternal throne. And Jesus at the right hand as your representative. He wants you to do that. He invites you to do that. He desires you to do that. But you must do that with the knowledge of how you can get there and not be expelled from His presence. And so we move to the Lord's table, and I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward, and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we'll take the cup and put it in our hand and contemplate these final two things as we partake of the bread and the cup. Something that you will notice when you are handed the cup is that both elements are together. There's a cup on the bottom with the bread and then a cup on the top with the juice. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. So we'll just be making one visit to you to hand these out and you'll have both elements in your hand.
if you would separate those two cups, and there's a little holder right in front of you. You can set your cup of juice in that holder, but don't press down. It'll get stuck. Just very gently set it in there. When Jesus was teaching about the Lord's Supper, he communicated some things that were very important. The first reference he made was a statement where he said, this is my body. What Jesus was calling us back to is the incarnation of Christ, that God put on flesh and blood, that the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, divine in essence and being equal with the Father, took on flesh and blood, clothed himself. And we've read through several texts that reminds us of that this was a work that he chose to do to take upon himself the very kind of skin and flesh that you live in every single day so that he might know you and understand you and so that you might know God and understand Him. So he came as a mediator. But right after those words, this is my body, he said, which is for you. So the second word that I want to give to you today to ponder and contemplate and to encourage you in your study of the righteousness of God is the word substitution. Substitution. You know what a substitute is. You have a substitute teacher that comes in. You mix into your drink, sometimes sugar substitute. Uh, You know what substitute is. It's something that takes the place of something else. Someone who takes the place of, of someone else. And Jesus taught us about this. And this was a... This was a revelation. It was a revelation based on some things that the Old Testament taught. In the Old Testament, in order to approach God, you had to have a substitute for you. So when a person went to meet God and to stand before Him, to fellowship with Him, to worship Him, to know Him, to enjoy Him, to delight in Him. He had to carry with Him, she had to carry with her, an acknowledgement of something that kept us apart from God. And that acknowledgement was the acknowledgement that sin separates us from God, so much so that the wages of sin is death. And so the person who was coming to worship had to bring an animal which was for them. The animal had a body and the animal was for them. And so they would bring the animal, perhaps a sheep, and they would bring that animal and they would place the animal between them and a holy, righteous, unapproachable God. One who was so holy and so righteous that if we appeared before Him without the substitute, then our life would be taken. So we needed a substitute whose life would be taken. So they would bring that sheep. The sheep had to be blameless. In other words, it could not have a defect anywhere on it. It had to be perfect in every way. And they had to bring that sheep and they had to stand that sheep between them and a holy God. And then they had to do something quite unbelievable. They had to place their hands on the head of that animal and they had to confess their sins. It was sort of a illustration of moving my sin off of me onto this animal. It was as if somehow I could transfer my guilt or my shame or my sin out of me and onto this animal. And so they would do that. 
But right after the transference, right after the confession, right after this is my sin and I am a sinner, they had to do something really, really hard. They had to take their little pocket knife, their little sword, and with the help of the priest, they had to cut the throat of that animal. And immediately that animal would begin to bleed out. And finally, the animal would stumble and the animal would fall. The blood would be collected and it would be spread before the altar of sacrifice. And basically, what would happen is God would say, This is how holy I am. You cannot approach me bearing your own sin. Because I am unapproachable. But if something could take your sin, and you could put your sins on that thing, then I can be approached. But that thing that takes your sin has to take your penalty too. That's why the animal had to die. Because the wages of sin is death. That ritual was repeated over and over every day of the week. Every week of the month. Every month of the year. Decade after decade. Until that it was practiced over a millennia. With one lesson. God is holy. You are sinful. And you must have a substitute who has a body that can bear a penalty. The substitute must be sinless and the the substitute must be blameless. The substitute must be perfect and the substitute must die. Because that's the wages. And so every day, week, month, year, hundreds of years, that lesson was taught. And it brings us to some truths we have to take in about that animal. The Bible says that the blood of animals can never relieve sin, never forgive sin, never remove sin. So that all those hundreds of years leading into a whole thousand of years that this was practiced was simply an object lesson taught over and over and over so that when the real thing came, it was a shadow, an illustration. So when the real thing came, all of a sudden we could say, oh, that's it. That's how men and women and boys and girls can approach God. Not through animals. So come with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. And then from there, we're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Romans 8, there is a truth about religious practice. That religious practice could never settle our sin issue. It could never remove our guilt. Never take away the stain of what kind of sinners we are. It could never remove the shame in the presence of God. It could never cover what we had done. And so Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. What does he mean? Saying that our flesh and blood... And the flesh and blood of animals can never deal with how horrendous sin really is. It can only illustrate it. It cannot finalize it. So over and over, the weakness of humanity under their sin, the weakness of an illustration, an animal uh, with, with the idea of it bearing sin, which it really couldn't, but could only illustrate what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. We never could live up to it. 
Listen to what it says. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Listen carefully. This is it. This is the point. You can't get to God because He's too holy. And you can line up millions. I'm telling you, millions of sheep and goats and and calves. Whatever you bring. And you can slaughter them all. But the Bible says what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. All of those sacrifices, all of that religious service, everything was simply an illustration that would come to a day when God would be the one who put on skin, who became a body, and who in becoming the body would actually be qualified to bear your Personal sin. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin on our, what's it say? Behalf. On our behalf. In our place. Think about that. This is my body for you. Jesus is your substitute. That's what you're celebrating today. That's what you're rejoicing in today. You're rejoicing that someone was qualified to take your place and stand before God and offer Himself in the guilt of your own sin and in His death, actually, eternally, permanently, remove it. The Bible is full of illustrations of it in First Peter Chapter 1, gloriously telling us that we were not redeemed with gold and silver and precious stones from our futile ways, but with the precious, spotless, beautiful blood of the Lamb. The sinless Lamb of God. 1 John 3.5 tells us that He was perfect and knew no sin. And so today, we're celebrating our approach to God. As we hold the bread in our hands, we're rejoicing that there is a way to God. That the way to God is that He actually took on skin, and in taking on skin, in His perfect sinlessness and utter righteousness, He was qualified then, after taking on skin, to take on sin. And right there at the cross, everything you've ever done, ever doing, ever will do, He became that. In that moment, your name was who He was. And so we celebrate that our approach to God has been made possible by someone who took on skin, then took on sin because He was sinless. Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Father, we contemplate Jesus. We rejoice in Him. And right now, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy. We call upon You to remind us of how sinful we are so that we can see that that beautiful transfer when we lay our hands on the head of Jesus, our Savior, and we say, I confess, this is what I'm really like. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are holy, God. We are sinful and here is our hope. Jesus Christ became skin. And Jesus Christ became sin. And He died for us. So we receive this with thanksgiving. Contemplate now. Pray to the Lord. Confess any sins you have. Repent of any area of your life.
with thanksgiving, Heavenly Father, we celebrate the body of Jesus Christ, which was for us, our perfect sacrifice. Jesus, we celebrate Your sinless, holy, wonderful, righteous life. We celebrate Your divinity as God in the flesh. We celebrate Your humanity as flesh in our place. We celebrate Your resurrection. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. The third word that I want to share with you is a strange Bible word. It's one you probably did not use in a sentence this week. And the word is propitiation. Propitiation. Did y'all use that in a sentence this week? I don't think we did. In fact, we probably never used that in a sentence. But the Bible uses that word probably about six or seven times. And it uses it for a purpose. I'll read through some texts, share with you its meaning, and then we'll partake of the cup. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus is doing a particular work. Join me there, Hebrews 2. It says that since the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then it goes down and uses that word in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's used again in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Listen to what the Bible says in that text. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. 1 John 4.10 tells us also, that He is the propitiation for our sins. And that this is God's love, that He sent Him to be the propitiation. So if the Bible frequently mentions this, and there's a few other times that it's used, what does it mean? Well, this is very important. In Jesus' death, there was more than just a death. It's bigger than just what's on the surface because the death was representative for all who would trust in Him, all who would call upon Him, all who would believe in Him in faith and turn from their sins and trust Him. He was representing them, but He was representing them to accomplish a particular thing. In propitiation, it's an old term that was used when a king was angry or a person who was in power or authority had been offended, and their anger and the offense was very serious. And when a king or a person in power was going to be propitiated, it meant that not only was their anger relieved, but their pleasure was restored. Not only was their anger relieved, but their pleasure was restored. Their delight was restored. This is very important. When Jesus dies for you, He is not only removing God's wrath from you, taking away God's punishment for your sins, removing God's anger against you because you were His enemy in your activities against Him. Now, He's not just doing that. He's fixing it so that now God delights in you as His own child. It is not merely moving you to neutral. 
It's not merely removing what he's angry about. The word propitiation has to do with returning the delight. So now God moves from anger against you because of your sin to delight in you because of his son. So that now when God looks upon you, the delight that he has in Jesus is the delight he has in you. To be propitiated is to not just have the anger and penalty removed. It is to have the joy and delight restored. The reason the cup is sweet and not bitter is because in Jesus' blood, the representation of the cup was the restoration of God's delight in His people after the removal of His anger because of their sin. That is why the cup is sweet. And why we celebrate with a sweet and not bitter cup. Because this is the sweet joy of the restoration of such a fellowship that we are the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the delight He has in His Son is now the delight He has in all of His children. All who have turned from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. So drink today, knowing His delight in us because of Jesus. Father, we give thanks for the cup and Your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen. And now we're going to take some time, read the Scripture that rejoices in this accomplishment, and celebrate in song the goodness of God toward us. While we were still helpless... At the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps, someone might dare to die. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through Him. Church, I want to ask you a question. It goes like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious peace of glory that makes me white as snow. Oh, my hope is peace. This is all.
but love no greater love Then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Romans 8, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit let's pray Jesus we are thankful for this Lord we we often do not understand the gravity the weight of these things of your love for us. Lord, we uh, often walk into your presence and, and we live as though we are deserving of this, as it, as it is something that should be expected for you to forgive us of our sins. Lord, taking your uh, forgiveness, Lord, um, and, and acting as though we deserve it. Jesus, help us to understand that we are so blessed because you do not take our sin into account. Because you have been that perfect substitute. On our behalf, you came down in flesh. Just like us. Lord, in that you became the propitiation for our sins. You took all of God's wrath so that there is no more left for us. There is no more condemnation. And we have life in you, Jesus. Help us to understand this. Open our eyes to these mysteries. The mystery of your gospel. And that you love enemies. You love sinners. In your son Jesus' name I pray.
this morning through the Lord's Supper, through the Scriptures, through the singing, we have proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to give you an opportunity to respond publicly with a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps you came here today and you were far from God and as a result of what was proclaimed and your understanding and the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you have said, I want to follow this Jesus that I heard about today. If He has done this, if He has literally taken on a body and bore my sin and poured out His life, I'll follow Him. And so I'm going to ask everyone if you would stand and if God is working in your heart today for you to call upon the Lord Jesus and to follow Him, I'm going to ask that you would pray with me this morning and call upon the name of the Lord that through your faith in Jesus Christ and His work for you. All confirmed by the glory of the resurrection. After He poured out His life on the third day, He was raised from the dead. He sits now at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for all who trust Him. Would you call upon Him now? Bow with me. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I have heard the message of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I give my life to Jesus. Because I believe He gave His life for me. I trust that He was God in the flesh. I trust that He is the Savior of all who call upon Him. I believe that He was raised from the dead and that He died for me. So please, God, in heaven, save me. I repent, I turn away from how I have lived before and I will walk with you and towards you all the days of my life. Save me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you happen to call upon the Lord to save you today, I would love to pray with you, to talk with you, to receive you, or if God's working in your life in any way and you want prayer today, come and share with us. We'd be glad as a staff to pray for you today. Come.